The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For almost three centuries, Sotheby's has been the place to discover the greatest stories of creativity. We've been the temporary custodians of some of the world's finest treasures, which you can see on display in our galleries on any given day. Welcome to Sotheby's Talks, the podcast that celebrates art, culture, and collecting. I'm Marina Ruiz Colomer, and I want to invite you inside the world of Sotheby's, a place where you can find the extraordinary including contemporary art, old master paintings, rare books, jewelry, and memorabilia. I'm a specialist in Sotheby's contemporary department, and throughout my career, I have championed the work of female artists. In 2021, I co-organized the first cross-category sale of work by women at Sotheby's. In the last few years, we have seen the demand for work by female artists increase dramatically, but there's still work to be done. So on this podcast, we're sharing some of the conversations we've been holding with our experts, along with tastemakers, collectors, and luminaries from the world of art and culture. In this episode, artistic director of the Serpentine Galleries, Hans Ulrich Obrist, moderated a conversation between philanthropist and creative director of Loput 1483, Francesca Thyssen-Bornemitza, artist Olaf Eliasson, and president and CEO of World Monuments Fund, Benedict de Montler. Together, they discussed Francesca's restoration of the 15th century Franciscan monastery Loput 1483 and the broader significance of rejuvenating neglected historical sites. Here's Hans Ulrich with more. Hello everyone, I'm Hans Ulrich Obrist and I'm so delighted to welcome you. Today we're going to be talking about the conservation of cultural heritage, exploring how new purpose and meaning can be brought to old structures so as to bring them back to life rather than just restoring bricks and mortar. And we will be focusing in particular on a perfect, amazing example on how these priorities have been woven together to preserve an extraordinary cultural treasure for generations to come, namely the 15th century Franciscan monastery on Loput, one of the Elafti islands of the coast of Dubrovnik in Croatia, a project uh, I was lucky to visit early on in the process with uh, Francesca Tissenborn-Emissa, whose vision this project is. And Francesca is actually joining us from Loput itself. Uh, Francesca is an arts patron, a philanthropist, and of course the founder and chair of TBA21, which focuses on commissioning artists, architects, scientists, writers, thinkers, and doers to focus on achieving peace with nature and ourselves through the lens of arts. Francesca is also the creative director of Loput 1483, the restored Franciscan monastery, as mentioned, on the Croatian island of Loput. A very warm welcome to Francesca. Thanks, Hannah, sorry. 
And in Basel, we have Olafur Eliasson, artist, internationally renowned for works, uh, groundbreaking works, including the Weather Project in the Tavern Hall at Tate Modern, uh, at the Serpentine Pavilion, together with Ketil Tarsen, the New York City Waterfalls, along the Manhattan and Brooklyn shorelines in New York. And more recently, we're going to hear about that as well today from Olafur, an incredible installation in Rian Live at the Bayler Foundation. A very warm welcome, Olafur. Thank you, Hans, and thank you, Francesca, for having me here. Thank you, Olafur. And in New York, we have Benedicto Montlauer, who is joining us. Benedict is president and CEO of the World Monuments Fund, a very important organization dedicated to the preservation of uh, historic architecture and cultural heritage sites, many, many sites around the world. A very warm welcome, Benedict. Thank you so much, Anselreich. Uh, we're now going to start the conversation. And I wanted to begin with the beginning and ask our three speakers why cultural heritage matters. And Benedict, can you tell us about what the World Monument Fund is doing to raise globally awareness of cultural heritage at, at risk? Well, so what we do is that we partner with individual and communities all around the world to save their heritage at risk. Heritage is so important because it's humanity's uh, collective memory. We take it for granted, we live around it, it shapes our identities, but we really realize how much it matters when it's endangered. I think we all uh, remember the feeling of loss we felt uh, when Notre Dame was on fire or when we learned that the Taliban destroyed the Buddhas in Bamiyan. So what we do is that through our main program, the Watch, we encourage nominations from individuals or organizations all over the world who want to raise awareness about heritage places of um, historic significance, but also where they think that we can create a project together that they need support for um, that would have a contemporary social impact that could really transform the lives of people around those sites. So every two years, we receive those nominations from all around the world. We select 25 projects that are the most meaningful, and then we adapt to the local needs. Sometimes just by putting the sites on the list, this really increase the visibility of the site and help mobilize people around the site without having to intervene uh, very strongly from our side. So I think LOPUD is a great example of what we can achieve in terms of advocacy through the watch. In fact, what's interesting is that LOPUD was on the first watch list of 1996. So for us, it was also an experiment of what we could achieve through that program. And it was really fabulous to see that just by putting this monastery on the watch, we had such an enthusiasm because we, we showed that you know, not only it was important historically, but there were so many uh, economic opportunities, especially in this post-conflict uh, situation around cultural heritage preservation. And it was wonderful to see that Francesca Thyssen von Mitzvah took over this project and carried it. One Monuments Fund was just involved at this very initial phase of the project to raise awareness about it. Thank you very much, uh, Benedict. And now, of course, uh, we want to hear more about Loput. Uh, we thought actually today is really about learning from Loput. And Francesca, I wanted to ask you to tell us, because Loput is such an outstanding example of an individual coming to the rescue of a place under threat. Can you tell us about how it all began? How, how did Loput enter your life? 
Before becoming an art collector for the last 20 years, I ran a, a nonprofit organization called ART, which stood for Art Restoration for Cultural Heritage. And I did that out of the Villa Favorita in Lugano, where I was working as a part-time curator in my father's museum. And Marilyn Perry, who was one of the founders of, of um, and I think believe still on the board of the World Monuments Fund, was on my board. And I was immensely influenced by the World Monuments Fund. And I was sort of intrigued by their passion for, for restoring and the restoration of old buildings. I made a quick study at um, the Arts Institute in New York for a while to study um, under Michael Glassy. And I watched a lot of conservation projects happening in the museum, um, mainly of, of works of art and paintings that were in the collection. And it was something that really drove me for quite a long time. And at that moment, the war in Yugoslavia broke out and the invasion of Croatia began by the Serb forces. And at the same time, there was a lot of ethnic cleansing going on in Bosnia-Herzegovina in particular. I believed at the time that, you know, cultural heritage actually really does represent very importantly past inhabitants of areas. When ethnic cleansing is happening, heritage plays an important role. I think we all cried when the Sarajevo Library was bombed and, and uh, many of its most precious manuscripts that represented a, a tolerant society between many different religions existing together in, in, in an area. So that was the end of this era. And I organized a conference about art at war in Zagreb Together with the Institute of Protection of Monuments, I visited many frontline positions. I was a bit of a war veteran at that time, um, taking tremendous risks myself. And I ended up coming to Dubrovnik just in uh, 92, which was just shortly after its siege and final uh, bombing by the, by the Serb Navy. And much of the city was still on fire and the surrounding areas were still occupied. And there was an incredible, incredible group of gold grain paintings that were hidden from, from the shelling in a basement underneath the Bishop's Palace in Dubrovnik. And sadly, that was pretty much at sea level. Many of those paintings were being damaged just by the conditions in which they had been hurriedly packed away. So we managed to take those out and I set up a conservation lab, the first conservation lab in Dubrovnik, together with some restorers that came from the region that had been trained in Zagreb. And the Franciscan monastery in Dubrovnik gave us a space in which this lab could be set up. And I worked together with Giovanni Madrusic from the Getty Conservation Institute and Stefano Scarpelli from the Uffizi in, in Florence. And we set up this project to restore these works, but also a training program so that they developed this expertise of working on these early Renaissance paintings, which are now thankfully all back in their places in the churches and in the various museums um, around in and around Dubrovnik. And this was a project that lasted 10 years. And in the process of which I had regular lunches in the refectory of the monastery in Dubrovnik with the friars, and Pio Mario, who was then the elder, said to me one day, have you ever been to Lopud? And I was like, where is Lopud? So he managed to convince a fisherman friend of his. And as we turned the corner of this incredible island, um, I, my eyes set on the fortification walls, the, the huge fortification walls around Lopud, 1483, and I fell in love. I actually brought Gary here 
quite early in the beginning. I hadn't even begun work. We came out here in, in a local police boat and he looked at this and he said, Francesca, take your time. Get to know this building. Let this building speak to you. And I was like, no, 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 I'll get it all done in about two years. It'll all be finished. I've got all the plans. I know what to do. And he looked at me and he said, let the building reach out to you. And it took me a few years uh, to understand what he was saying. And I actually am happy to tell him uh, how incredible his advice was for me. I think that a lot was a discovery of all the different layers of history. And there are many, many parts of this building which we still don't know or understand. But um, this island were huge shipbuilders, and there's a huge history in shipbuilding here for the Spanish Armadas, and, and therefore this island was very frequently attacked. So having a hospital inside the monastery was a very big priority, which really sort of then triggered my interest in botany and the medicinal properties of plants which then informed the, the, the further practice of restoring the gardens and, and discovering and making connections to old recipes of old medicinal properties of plants and trying to create a botanical garden outside. So you see, I've been drawing from so many different uh, references what then uh, was to happen. We planted something like 66 different varieties of plants. We continue to, to them grow as we study more the potential of the gardens. But this history, this um, relationship with this area and the relationship with the Franciscans, which I think is so important. He, he lived in the 12th century, as many of you know, and was probably the most charismatic figure in all of the history of Christianity and his came from a very wealthy background, but his message was uh, modesty and poverty, but also the connection and the respect of all natural and living beings and entities. So to me, he was also one of the original conservationists. And so there is a garden full of herbs. It also has nine extraordinary meditation spots designed by a shaman that I've been working with for 10 years called Asa Anderson. And these different locations throughout the garden offer people a refuge and, and a place to relax. As we come, travel across the island and we go to a central part of the island, which is also a part of the garden that I also restored, it's an olive grove. And that will lead us from the monastery to your black horizon. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Francesca. And actually, of course, we spoke uh, earlier today about the importance uh, for you with this project to actually bring life um, to buildings, not just their roofs, and basically by drawing also from history, from local traditions, and of course, by opening up this space of, of healing. And we're going to talk about that with you later. But I think uh, it's, as you suggest, a great moment to bring in Olafur. Olafur, it would be great to hear about the art pavilion you created, Your Black Horizon. It was initially shown, I remember, in 2005 in Venice at the Biennale, where we actually all together spoke at the conference, and then uh, in 2007 moved to Lopu. It would be great if you can tell us a little bit about the genesis of this project. I was interested in, in lighting. So the 
the Black Horizon actually all started uh, with light. Francesca and I had in Iceland experienced a horizon line that I that I made in a space, and she came to me with this notion of what about recording a day 24 hours of light, as I'd done in Iceland, in Venice, because wasn't Venice really about that whole Canaletto, the history of, of how light was not just about science, but it was about how we shape the world and ourselves and so on and so forth. The, the whole thing with Venice is, is, is the question, and, and as an artist, I think that's always interesting. Are people coming to travel back in time and meet something where they say, oh, this is really old, my God, this is how they lived, and this is how... Or, or is Venice actually traveling up to meet us where we are today? Is Venice contemporary? And throughout my generation, uh, the last 20, 30, uh, 40 years, there has been this shift where we say, well, the past is not objective. The reality we're in today is also not just one reality. It's many realities. It's many truths. There's many pasts. There's many futures. And it's not to say that everything is relativism and everything is highly subjective. It's more about acknowledging the fact that things are relative to the context and the content you're dealing with. And in that way, we, we um, I mean, this is something we, of course, have discussed in many different ways. The idea of the Black Horizon came about why, well, the process of the quality of the white light during the day, from the earliest morning where the sun rises, which is red or pink or, or somehow purple, then the, all the different types of white light that you have during the day, the kind of bluish to cloudy, then there was a thundercloud, then there was again the bit of sunshine, then the sun started setting and it becomes very orange and it becomes very, very soft and, and darker in a sense. It was a, a recording we did with a nanospectric device uh, for science. And how do we host a horizon? How do we create a space in which a horizon is actually the host. You know, normally we would think of ourselves at the center, as the center of the world, and the horizon is is what is furthest away. Could we turn it around? And say this is where the horizon lives. This is where you go in, and because it is absolutely dark inside of the pavilion, and there is still this one line of light. We play the um, how should I say? We play the whole twelve hours of of daylight. We play that in. I think it's like six minutes or eight minutes or something like this. And here, the camera maybe over amplify the bluish tone of this. But what is maybe more important, it's actually quite hard to tell how far away is this that you're looking at. Because it's completely black in there and you just see this one line. Is it a hole in the building through which you're looking to the outside or what is it actually seeing? So there is a, a bit of a, how should I say, a negotiation. Am I seeing something? 10 meters away or 2 meters away? Should I be careful not to bump into the wall? Is this actually something I can touch? And this notion of negotiating as you go, this notion of, well, I have been given the responsibility to constitute my own horizon. I am actually been put in a place where they think, whoever has created this thing here, they think I'm smart enough to actually make up my own mind about what is my own horizon. And of course, the interesting thing for me is that there is never a moment which is the same. The lights keep changes. I mean, when it goes in a loop, so it becomes the same again. And and this is, I think, this notion of everything is on the move. Nothing stands still. There are no uh, nouns. Everything is verbs. And it is with the understanding of that 
just like when you're in an art museum, you actually find out that there is also room for people in that idea. And of course, thank you, Olafur. That's exactly what uh, you did in Rien near Basel now. But before we talk about that, I have one more question about the pavilion. Because before I visited, I always sort of thought it was the monastery and the pavilion. And I actually realized being there that the pavilion connects deeply to the landscape. And that almost creates a kind of a counterbalance to the monastery. Can, can you talk about that? Well, I was very interested in this notion of um, the monastery has not stopped traveling. The monastery is on the move. You know, you could also say it's been traveling for, for how long? 500,000 years now. And, and, the, and we are meeting up with the monastery today. And that meeting up, I think, your Black Horizon was to a certain extent a celebration of this notion of presence. You know, we, we tend, especially in the westernized world, to think that we, the excellent people, the uh, people of excellence, of we are the ones who are moving and the rest of the world is standing still. Just when the colonialists, they moved to, the Spaniards moved to Mexico, they said, oh, Mexico is standing still and the Spaniards were traveling. That was actually not the case. The Mexico was on the move as well. And it was a meeting up, which went, went very bad for the Mexicans. But, but this notion of, of primarily the sort of conventional white Western idea that we can conquer, we can take over, we can colonize, we can sort of take it in. I was interested in how do we leave that notion and acknowledge that it is a lot more complex. There's a lot of need to, um, how should I say, I, I use the word decolonize with with carefulness because, um, because I'm a white old guy, but I think there is a great need to Sort of reframe the fact that the macho or the sort of patriarchic or the the paternalistic, you know, that all these things has has kind of driven uh, into a, a strangely centralized vision where everything is around me. The modern progress, more success tomorrow, more and more and more, is in front of me. And what I actually forget is simply to look around or to look down, look at the earth on which I'm standing. So the, the, the dialogue in Lopud, as you asked, so I'm sorry to give you such a convoluted an answer, uh, Hans, but it was this coming together of something that had almost been sent from the future, someone traveling from the past, and that is the monastery, and something who's almost as if it is a thought, it's a concept, it's an idea which has not really yet been born, like a horizon, right? We are looking at the horizon, we are seeing what is about to come to us. And so the meeting up, how do we host the presence? Thank you, Olaf. And uh, that actually brings it back to, to Francesca. But before that, maybe we can hear a little bit about how you actually approach the architecture of the Bayer Foundation in Basel, because you're now in Basel, in Rien. That, of course, is not an answer to an old building. It's more of Walter Benjamin said. It's a building from the chess past, from the very recent past the Renzo Piano building, and you created an experience uh, which is unprecedented, really, because you basically opened the museum to the outside. Lina Bobardi once said the outsides are in the inside, the insides are on the outside. And that's what's happening here. You also flooded half of the Bayer Foundation. Can you tell us about this experiment? I was incredibly excited about being offered the opportunity to show at the Bayer Foundation. Famously, the building is actually inspired by the great building by Renzo Piano in 
in Houston called the Menil Foundation or the Menil Museum. And the Menil Museum, I would like to think that Renzo Piano was inspired by Frederick Johnson, who did the private estate of the Menils. And, and it was very progressive, lots of glass and so on. And this was done. There was this notion of, is the glass actually a democratization of, you know, letting the outside in? Lina Bobadi, as you said, there was lots of discourses. And only up in the 90s, Richard Sennett brought our attention to the fact, well, 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 he said, maybe the glass is a social boundary. Maybe the glass in front of a shopping window, in front of a Gucci stall, is actually more showing the distance between the inside and outside and the social distance because I can't afford it. And and this notion of glass also became an issue in museology and in museum questions. Is the glass, in fact, a time capsule preventing the contemporary dialogue with, with which has a much more embodied of maybe a piece of Chinese porcelain? So so the role of, of, of vitrines, of glass, the whole museum's one big vitrine and and the, all the way from, from Philip Johnson and, and across architecture history also has a lot with a certain question about what is the political standing as it comes to the passing of time. I called Renzo Piano and said, Mr. Piano, I actually would very much like to ask you if I can remove the facade. The museum, they were very supportive and they said, but you better call Renzo Piano. And, and Renzo was... Uh, well, he was a little surprised that I asked, but he was like, well, you know, if the museum is up for it, uh, why not? And what the intention was, was in fact to go all the way with regards to the transparency that the glass seems to elude. He said, no, the transparency is not really there. It's a, it's a, it, it becomes a shopping window. So I raised the water level of the lily pond as much as I could. And that was enough to bring about eight or 10 centimeters uh, water into the whole museum course, we put a little membrane, and, and as, as, as you can imagine, we protected the museum by by that standard. But but and then I created a pathway through which you walk, and you are essentially, you know, walking through an exhibition of the outside invited inside. Not at least also the species, the environment, the plants. Uh, there's a lots of plants in collaboration with Gunther Folk, the landscape architect. We made, you know, a whole principle about. And that will be my last comment on that, but it, because it brings us back to Lopwood. Maybe, as Francesca said, 75 years ago, the Human Rights Charter was made by UN, and the values that was born out of that uh, cannot be uh, appreciated enough. But what happened to the Rights Charter for plants and species? For the plant, for the commons, right? For the ocean, for the sky. And there are rules. You know, there are like a certain rule about how much pollutants you can have in the air. There are, there are rules here and there, right? But it's not what we call rights of personhood. And now we see a younger generation. Suddenly we have this question, well, maybe trees or mountains in, in New Zealand, the mountains have rights of personhood. But we must understand that we are living at times where there is an enormous shift, enormous and there's a kind of a recalibration of values. What I think happens when you take a building like the, the monastery in, in Luput and you give it agency in a contemporary world, and just like we heard at the beginning, it brings so much energy up to today, acknowledging that building traveled several hundred years, several world wars to come to meet us. And this meeting up of trajectories, I think such a beautiful idea which offers a kind of different hospitality also when it comes to meeting up with plants, with species, meeting up with the 
extinction of, of insects, for instance. So there's so much going on right now. Thank you so much, Rodolf, for And of course, what you say resonates also so deeply with writers like Emanuele Kocha or Stefano Mancuso, no? what they say yeah, about good. plants. But it also goes back actually to um, uh, many, many centuries back to, say, Francis. It goes back to Hildegard von Bingen. And that, of course, brings us to this long-durational dimension. Both Francesca and you spoke about Francesca, I wanted to ask you to tell us more about uh, Lopwood 1483 because it is actually open now for special stays and uh, events uh, and it's inspired by a philosophy so that it isn't becoming a crowded space but it is actually a space of peace, of serenity uh, and it is inspired by St. Francis. Can you tell us more about that? Well, so I would say that St. Francis was one of the original environmentalists. Um, his passion for all living sentient beings was such a focus. And what this monastery offers is is this retreat possibility and the, the, the possibility of healing, not only inner healing through its meditational um, practice that and obviously the, the practice of the monks before serenity and so on, but also looking at rebuilding or renewing our relationship with nature. So that has been a very big priority for us. One last point, Francesca, is because Olafur talked about uh, the pavilion, and the pavilion has now been listed as a cultural heritage on the island. Uh, and of that, that has, of course, created such a fascinating dialogue, also with the local, with sailors and actually people from the sea. It's in that sense... Uh, a catalyst. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think it's really relevant to hear more. Well, I mean, one of the biggest focuses was to not only restore the buildings, bricks and mortar, as you said at the beginning, uh, Hans-Erik, but also to revive it, to, to give it life again. And, and, you know, much of our history is connected to our relationship with nature. And this is a place where very strongly you reconnect with nature. So, there, there is so much about the history that we've woven together to create something of contemporary culture, very focused on renewal and restoration of our soul and our spirit, as well as our relationship with nature. Thank you, Francesca. And that, of course, leads us to also the question of local communities, you know, and Benedict, uh, that's something which is very important in your work, how you actually help local communities and in my conversations with Eduard Lissa and Mantia Diabara, we discussed a lot how one can be local, rooted in one context, but do that in a way that does not lead to the exclusion of other people's roots. It doesn't lead to the hierarchization or election of some roots over others. As Eduard Lissa says, we need to celebrate roots, local roots that expand elsewhere, roots that touch each other. They are not singular roots. They are roots that cover, that protect some other, and that seems to have a lot to do with many, many of the projects you're working on. Can you tell us uh, more? Thank you so much, Anselric, for quoting Edouard Glissant, who is one of my favorite authors, and I think who is also so important today as we are trying to navigate this articulation between local and global. And you're right, this is exactly what we are trying to do. We think heritage it belongs to humanity, is our shared heritage, but we, we think also uh, heritage can be a living heritage only if it's really anchored in the local and it's the very history of the place and its community. And I was so inspired by everything we've just heard from Francesca 
and from Olafur, because, you know, heritage is not only monuments from the 16th century. It's also modernist buildings by Renzo Piano, and it's also sometimes immaterial uh, heritage. You know, we are working, for instance, on the stories of the uh, leaders of the civil rights in Alabama. So heritage is, is, it goes throughout history, but what's important is to take the marvel, the architectural marvel created by humanity, places where a lot of things happen, and to think about it and think about its meaning today for the local people living here and for us. So that was, I, I think Lowpoods is such a perfect example of a successful heritage project because it starts with very careful study of the history of the place and of its different aspects. Uh, the botanical aspect of Lopo is so interesting. And then you build out of it. And that's where preservation is not about stopping things. It's about continuation. It's about merger between the past, the present and the future. So yes, uh, around the world, we are trying to bring the best, like the highest standard of conservation while always being anchored in the local. So for instance, in Croatia, the whole point, I think, was also to participate in healing this country after uh, the terrible uh, wars. And this is something we are continuing. In fact, we've been working uh, since the 80s in post-conflict reconstruction, trying really to use heritage project as an asset to strengthen communities shattered by war. So after uh, the Balkans, we've worked a lot in uh, Cambodia. And, and most recently, we've been extremely involved in the Middle East. The Middle East is really uh, the birthplace of civilization, has incredible heritage, as we all know, and has suffered a now uh, decade of conflict. And, and we think a heritage project there can really play an important role. The important thing is, is always this merger of respecting the past. And I think that has been evoked a lot today, like this idea of respect, of balance between the present, the past, our environment, the, the natural environment, but also the built environment and us human. So studying the past and seeing how we can reinvent it. If you're really assessing the conditions, studying the history, engaging the community. In all our projects, we do a lot of community engagement to understand from people what this heritage means for us, what they want to use it for, and how it would be useful for them and for their children. Amazing. Thank you so, so much, uh, Benedict. And there could not be a better conclusion. All many thanks to Francesca, to Olaf, to Benedict. And thank you all for joining us. This was Sotheby's Talk Season 1. Thank you for joining us. To step further into the world of Sotheby's, you can visit any of our galleries around the world. They're open to the public. For more information, visit Sotheby's.com. And don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season one, which features conversations with guests, including Marina Bramovic, Mary McCartney, Tracy Emin, Paloma Picasso, and Julianne Moore, is now live. <laughs>